guest today on the Circle of Competence podcast is AJ Wasserstein. AJ is a private investor with a long-term orientation interested in lower middle market businesses and philanthropic organizations. AJ is also a professor at Yale School of Management where he teaches several courses on SMB leadership, acquisitions, and entrepreneurship. AJ, welcome back to the Circle of Competence podcast for part two, where we'll focus a bit more on your entrepreneurial journey as well as your series on the nature of programmatic acquisitions. Yeah, Benton, thank you so much for having me back, Victor. Thank you so much. Uh, I, get, I guess I wasn't so horrible in the first session because you're inviting me back for seconds. So that's really kind and gracious of you. And I'm thrilled uh, to have another conversation with you. Well, just to get things kicked off, I know that we are back in school. I should say you and Victor are back in school. So what are you working on right now? Maybe it's writing, maybe, maybe it's something different yeah. that is most exciting to you. So I'm not back in school yet. I have uh, one more week. <laughs> so I am in the final throes of polishing, perfecting, and tweaking the uh, upcoming courses I have for the fall semester. But uh, from a writing perspective, I have two things that are sort of in process, which are exciting and fun. And thanks for asking. So I'm in the process of uh, wrapping up with a, with a former student, um, a case note on culture. So culture is just a huge uh, concept and thing in an emerging small business. But I think what's really challenging is when you're a young, first-time and experienced entrepreneur, you might understand culture is important, but I, I always felt like, well, what do I do? Like, <laughs> where, where's the checklist or recipe for driving a successful culture? And how do I do that? So we're exploring that topic in a case note, and that's been fun to work on. And something I'm just getting off the ground right now, which was also very mysterious to me, as a young entrepreneur, and I'm embarrassed to admit, but a case note on working capital. And the title of that case note is understand, the working title of that case note is understanding the mysteries of working capital. Because that's a concept I think a lot of students and a lot of entrepreneurs wrestle with. They loosely get it, but I'm not sure they totally get it. Um, so anyway, two, two projects in the works right now. Thank you for asking. Yeah, yeah. I could be wrong, but I feel like uh, a really good note that I remember reading uh, a few years back was Brent B. Shore's note on working capital. I, I haven't, maybe... haven't seen that. Matt Henson has a really good one as well. Yeah, I, I remember that one. Matt Henson has a good one. Um, I, AJ, I'll try and find that one and maybe send it to you. And maybe I'm totally uh, hallucinating here. But I want to go back to the note on culture. Maybe that's a good place to start. And um, one of my favorite pieces that you've written is about your personal journey and some of the lessons that you gleaned uh, along the way. And so, you know, Archives One, what did culture mean to you all and how did you establish it? And I think there are a few different ways we could take this depending on how you respond. Sure. So I, I sort of traveled the culture journey um, where at first I totally underestimated the importance of culture. I just didn't understand it. And I was initially in sort of survival mode. So culture didn't really rise on my list. Then I foolishly and naively thought culture was people wearing Hawaiian shirts and playing beer pong uh, or, or ping pong with beer on Friday afternoons. And that was uh, a deeply flawed perception of what culture is. And then I really understood, I began to understand in my evolution and journey that culture was really the sort of the, the connective tissue that held an organization together, which was particularly important as an organization scales and increases geographic scope. It's sort of the how we do things around here. And some of that's explicit. Some of those are written rules and other uh, other elements of culture are ambiguous and nebulous and nebulous and amorphous. And it's sort of this squishy, how you do things, what's appropriate behavior. Um, it's not just people uh, within the organization. It's also how you interface with uh, vendors and customers and your community and what you do when things go wrong. So you know, I, I, I embarrassingly don't really think we 
had a, a secret sauce. I don't, I'm not sure there was anything particularly special about us as a company at Archives One. Um, if there was anything, it was our culture. It was just sort of the, the glue that helped us stick together, um, which was especially potent as we got bigger. And, and I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs and students sometimes wrestle with why is culture why is culture important? And to me, culture is important because as you scale, you need fewer managers, you need fewer middle managers, you have uh, lower team member, that's the phrase I use for employees, but you have lower team member recruiting costs, you have lower team member churn, um, you have higher customer satisfaction, you have higher customer retention, like all these things become incredibly mathematical where culture initially feels like this touchy-feely thing, but it drives the math. So um, anyway, that's just a little bit about my culture journey and story. Sure. And, and to tie in another lesson from that, that same paper, um, executing over vision. So one of the lessons that you, you, you write about is, is just the importance on, on execution of whatever your vision is. So from a tactical standpoint, um, how did you work from sort of not knowing what your culture was to, all right, now we've kind of got it figured out the direction we want to go, but then how do you implement that? Like, what did it look like? What are some things that you did over time to really instill principles or values or a, a culture at the company? Sure. So I, th I think one of my flaws as a CEO is I'm not sure I was long vision. Uh, I'm much more of a doer, checklist, get things done type of person. So we, we had a vision. Uh, part of our vision was copying people within our industry, copying people outside our industry. But I, it wasn't like we had some massive, crazy, disruptive vision. But we, were, we really tried to focus on being execution machines. So th this is my cascading series of events. I'm not saying this is original. This is very Jim Collins-ish. But I, th I think it also starts with your values. So sort of either identifying aspirationally or affirming your values that already exist. And, and a predecessor to even the corporate values are really individual values. So the corporate values tend to flow from the CEO's individual values. And as a CEO, you individually can't be dismissive of people or dismissive of customers or, or have a really, really high tolerance for imperfection and then have that translate into the corporate values of embracing people, customers, and operational excellence. So, so I believe the individual CEO's values and the corporate values tend to be pretty darn coincidental uh, if not perfectly coincidental. Okay, so once you establish values, I think then you could you you can begin to try to articulate a vision of where an organization is going and what it wants to be and why. I think from vision you cascade into strategy, and I I always think about strategy as um, where are the trains going, um, uh, and then I think about falling into structure. So structure follows strategy and structure drives execution. And execution is all about how the trains get there on time. So in the, in the small, medium businesses, Benton and Victor, that we tend to traffic in and read about, study, build, aspire to be, you know, the vision is important. I don't want to undersell the vision. Having a clearly articulated vision would be really motivating for customers, uh, finance partners, team members. It matters. But boy, I would rather uh, put my weight into execution and the relentless getting it done as compared to having a lofty vision that sort of stalls. Um, but most important, uh, the foundation is values. And, and when we, I don't think when we defined our values, they're aspirational at Archives One, I think they were our values. We just took the time 
to clearly, concisely, tersely put them on a piece of paper and articulate to all of our constituents what we stood for and what our values were. And they weren't lofty, they weren't uh, uh, particularly flowery or complex, but, but once we articulated what our values were, it was a relentless drumbeat of this is acceptable behavior, this is who we are, this is how we think, and this is not acceptable behavior. And this is how we're gonna try to attract people and reward people. And if you don't adhere to these values, you might not be a good fit for the team. And, and that became really powerful when we started doing a lot of acquisitions. Um, but values are really the underpinning of culture. Um, and, uh, you, know, I, you know, we did a lot of corny things, but, but we started literally every single meeting talking about values. So every meeting I had, whether it was one-on-one -on -one or a group meeting, we would talk about values. Um, and so at times the question would be, where have we failed our values in the past 30 days? Where have we lived up to our values in the past 30 days? Let's pick one value and talk about an example how we really lived this value. Let's talk about one team member within the organization that was a great example of living a certain value. You know, it was just that relentless drumbeat that um, that we weave those values into every part of our our, our uh, daily activities in the organization. So, um, uh, yeah. So we we just we we resisted the temptation when you talk about vision or values, making that wallpaper. And, and often that's what it is. But if you talk about all the time and live it all the time, it actually becomes real. And then it becomes really powerful. So I, I, I write a lot. I'm not sure I'm a great author. And I always joke the key to being a great writer is having a fantastic editor. But, but when I was writing Archives One, I wrote a monthly team member letter. And in each team member letter, we would talk about our values and we would highlight uh, team members that were great, uh, great examples that month of living the values. And we would talk openly where as an organization, we fell short on our values. We wouldn't call out individuals in the team letter for failure, but we did celebrate success and we took the hit organizationally for failure. So I, I don't know if that's helpful. A lot, lot, lot of information there. No, it's super helpful. Did you ever struggle to integrate um, or pass on the culture that you'd built at Archives One to the, the new companies that you'd acquired? Not at all. That was really easy because when you have a strong, positive culture that you're comfortable with, it's very easy, Victor, to say to new team members who you're onboarding, hey, this is our culture. This is what we're about. Read our values, talk to our people, read all of our propaganda and information that we have available for you. If you could get on this bus and be excited and live what we're talking about, you're going to thrive. You're going to have fun. You're going to make more money. You're going to get more responsibility. If this isn't who you are, if you can't be excited about customer service, operational excellence, making decisions based on data, uh, being frugal, um, if that isn't who you are or you can't align with that, no worries at all. Doesn't mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean I'm a bad person but it's probably not going to work out. And once you have the confidence to, to be open about that, life becomes really easy. So one thing I'm super proud of, Victor and ben, Benton, is when we did a whole bunch of acquisitions, um, I don't have any, any statistical data on this, but anecdotally, it was just thrilling to see all the onboarded team members thrive in our system. So when you have a culture which embraces information sharing, openness, uh, treating people with dignity and respect, putting customers at the center of everything, being frugal about wasteful spending, but being really generous about CapEx spending that had appropriate returns. Um, so we were all about 
uh, shelving efficiency and forklifts and trucks. Like we want people to be safe and we want to deploy capital into the system that allowed the business to be bigger, more profitable and better. It drove me up a wall if we wasted money on office supplies. So, so look, you know, it's hard to be against that. How can you be against customer service and operational excellence? Uh, how can you be against information sharing? How can you be against safety? I, you know, so so people really thrived and they they got multiple promotions and more compensation. And that was great. That was really great to see. And Victor, I am not naive. Uh, we weren't necessarily an all-star team, including me. Uh, but but I think our, our culture our systems and processes allowed everybody, including me, to play a level up. So, so if you were sort of normally a B-ish type of person, great culture, great systems, great processes, you sort of get a lift to a B plus or an A minus. If you're a C type of person, you got a lift to a B. And, and, and that's impactful. In the early <clears throat> early stages of defining and shaping this culture, was it an iterative process for you on the values, or, or did you say these are my values? Do you all agree with these? Is there anything that we're missing, and how should we go forward? Like, how, what was yeah. that process? I, like? I'm not saying I'm right or wrong. We we did it very top down, um, not aspirational. These are our values, and we just started talking about about them over and over again. It wasn't a big we want everyone's input. Uh, that wasn't how we did it. And once again, I'm not saying we're right or wrong, but that's just the way we did it. It was sort of uh, iterative over uh, over about a month with the executive team, and then roll out, and then and then realizing Benton and Victor that when you do something like that, you're planting seeds. So the, you put a lot of time and energy into something like culture and, uh, and uh, depressingly, there's absolutely no result quickly. Uh, it's, it's sort of like planting a seed and nurturing the soil and the flower and weeding and giving it nutrients and making sure it gets sunlight. And then all of a sudden, it's something really, really powerful and beautiful years later. And, and then it creates sort of like this multiplying effect where that initial seed planting has all these positive permutations that we could have never envisioned or imagined. I feel like we could talk about just just this for two hours, but we've only got you for, for an hour. So I've got one more sure. question before we hop into the, the programmatic um, acquisition series. And it, it's this. It, it kind of pairs with the, the the vision, the values, the cultural piece. Open book management is something you mentioned in this piece. And I would imagine you have to have a very specific type of culture for that to be receptive and not sort of backfire in a big way. I, I don't know. I was just really curious about that. How were you able to roll that out <clears throat> without people walking in your office and saying, hey, what the heck? Like, I'm making this and you're making that. What, what's going on here? Yeah. So first, open book management is a whole concept and thing for which I deserve no credit whatsoever. So Jack Stack wrote a book called The Great Game of Business in the 1980s. And that's really the genesis of open book management. So verbal footnote, uh, everything I've learned is just from studying other people roll out something like open book management. So so in Archives One, our organization, um, the organ our company was getting bigger, more complex, more people. And I think some companies sort of hoard information and weaponize information and use it as a tool to uh, intimidate people or keep people in check or have control over people. Uh, we just tried to be an enlightened organization and we used uh, information to empower people and lift people and give them more responsibility and try to make them true partners and and um, allow them to play better. So I am not particularly a good athlete nor am I a big sports fan, but it's sort of akin to, hey, how you expect how you expect the people on the team to play well if you don't tell them the score? 
or you don't tell them whatever leading indicators of the final box score of the game is throughout the game. Um, It's asking your employees to play blind. Why would you do that? Um, It's akin to asking pilots in an airline to not look at the instrument gauges. Um, So we, we took a pretty open view of that. Part of that was also driven by the fact that uh, I think team members, employees are already making wild assumptions about all sorts of things in the organization. So, uh, and some of them think you're you're making way more money than you are. Some of them think that you're going bankrupt. Uh, if you lost a customer, they think, oh my God, the world's going to end and I'm going to get fired. So we we just came to the conclusion, hey, let, let's just be honest. Let's just tell them what's going on. And we developed a cadence and um, a cadence of information sharing and a set of statistics and a balanced scorecard that we communicated to various levels of the organization. So, so that drove culture. I mean, when you all of a sudden you're really open with people and you're talking with them about the things you as a leader in the organization care about, um, that's really empowering to people. They, they, you're treating them with respect and dignity and um, they're going to respond accordingly. Now, look, I want to be candid. We, we, we shared information at appropriate levels of the organization with appropriate education. So, uh, so we shared as much information as we could with each segment of the organization as was productive and reasonable uh, for people to comprehend. So I I wasn't expecting hourly team members to do MBA level financial analysis, but we gave them some information uh, so they felt like they had some control over what was going on in the organization. So even more important than the financial information because as much as I love GAP, uh, GAP is a trailing indicator. That sort of tells you the score after the game is over. What you really care about is the leading indicators, those operational leading indicators on a daily, weekly, monthly basis that will help you manage the score or predict the score uh, before the game is over. So we cared a lot about things like overtime hours. We cared a lot about, uh, we called it touches, which was a, sort of an efficiency metric in the record center. We cared about accurate deliveries. We cared about stops per vehicle, per driver, per day. And we really, really cared about avoiding rework. So rework is a sin. Not only is it very expensive, but it usually reflects the fact that a customer is not so happy. So, so the, those are examples of the operational metrics that we cared about that help drive customer service and financial performance. So the goal is never financial performance because that's a trailing uh, event. The goal is great customers, great customer happiness, retention, appropriate pricing, and that drives financial performance. Um, yeah, so that, that was really positive for culture. That that made people feel like they were in the boat and rowing in the same direction. And we were treating them like adults and giving them the, giving them the tools to behave like adults. I, I, I'm not sure how anyone could be against that. I, I think the risk is when you do that, if business is not good, those are painful conversations. When you're sharing data like that and things go sideways, uh, your team members are going to know. But they'll probably know anyway. So so open book management, I think, is imperfect. But the real question is, is it a better imperfect than secrecy or not? And I'm going to make the argument it's a better imperfect. Is it possible to have open book management without some sort of incentives that, I don't want to say force, but at least encourage everyone to row in the same direction? Yeah, so not sure. I, I, I 
definitely think open book management can exist without equity sharing. I think open book management might be able to exist without bonus sharing. I think it's totally appropriate uh, for lots of different reasons to share incentive variable comp with team members uh, keyed in on the inputs of operational toggles that will drive the financial performance you want or anticipate. So I, you mentioned you yeah you mentioned in in your piece that there were some you shared more information with the executive sure. team maybe a little bit less um, as appropriate with um, with non executive members and so were there bonus structures if you will tied to strictly perform or, um, financial performance or were there other non financial attachments as yeah. well so 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 we believed in having individual and group incentive compensation for most people. Um, the, the deeper in the organization, the more individual oriented the variable comp was because that's what they controlled. Um, the higher up in the organization, the more the variable comp was cross-functional, cross-departmental and corporate driven. So there were still some individual comp, um, but but for CFO, COO, sales leader, and myself, we really viewed those incentive comp and goals as the entire enterprise, uh, not heavily individual centric. Does that make sense? Well, I think it's a perfect, <clears throat> perfect time to segue into the programmatic acquisitions strategy and the series that you've written on it, maybe a good way to start there would be just to explain what do you mean by programmatic acquisition strategy and why entrepreneurs should even consider this after buying a business. Sure. Or maybe even before buying a, a small business. Yeah, so, so uh, when I define... Uh, programmatic acquisitions, sometimes that's referred to as serial acquisitions, sometimes it's referred to as a buy and build, sometimes it's referred to as a roll up or a consolidation. Um, it, it's the activity of buying multiple uh, businesses, often within the same industry as one toggle, but not the exclusive toggle of building a larger organization. I'm dancing on a pinhead here, but to me, roll up sounds a little bit like, hey, let's buy a bunch of companies. Let's hold it together with scotch tape, bubble gum, and paper clips. Let's hold our breath. Uh, our, our weighted average buy is five times. We hope our weighted average sell is 10 times. Woo, off to the races and, and hope, hope, hope we get across the finish line before anyone really takes a deep look underneath uh, the, the hood of the engine. When I, when I talk about programmatic acquisitions, I, I think a little bit more in terms of building a enduring and sustainable enterprise over a very long period of time and using acquisitions as one, but maybe not the only way to grow a business. And I think if you look at the math of adding a modest amount of acquired revenue on an annual basis over a 10, 20, 30 year period, that is an incredibly powerful compounding machine. If you get a little bit of organic growth on the acquired businesses, if you get some margin expansion, if you get some multiple arbitrage, if you get some operating leverage and synergies, um, and you have a favorable capital structure that might allow you to buy target businesses for nearly all debt, um, or at least not requiring more equity, that is a wonderful strategy and foundation to build a very appealing durable, and I use that word durable and intentionally, uh, business over a long period of time. So I, I, I don't want to say this is the only way, uh, but I, I, I can't think of a lot of great ways 
that are more attractive, more superior than executing a programmatic acquisition strategy in the SMB market for a young entrepreneur to build a dynamic enterprise that's worth a lot of money and, and have a ton of fun. Yeah, I mean, the first question that comes to mind for me is just what kind of, I, I kind of think of it as like a platform, like the initial business uh, that goes out and, and embarks on a programmatic acquisition strategy. Um, what sort of platform enables itself very well to do that? So <laughs> and I say that jokingly, Victor, but um, yeah, the, the, this programmatic acquisitions are a part. Um, this is not easy. Um, it's hard. So if if you don't have a great base business uh, in a really desirable industry, this is not for you. So I can't recall Benton or Victor. Do either of you have kids? I don't. Benton does. Okay. Benton's got kids. So I sometimes make this joke in class that considering programmatic acquisitions is like considering children. So if you have a great marriage and you're totally aligned, everything's humming, uh, you know, everything's just firing on all cylinders in your marriage, it might, might make sense to have children. And I assure you, having children will stress the system and bring out every wart and flaw in the marriage. Um, but if you are in a challenged marriage, um, having children will not make your marriage better. It will make your marriage harder. And I love kids and I love being married. I've been married for 27 years, but it's sort of a humorous way to try to draw an analogy. So programmatic acquisitions are similar in the sense that if you don't have a great base business in a very, very attractive industry, buying more businesses isn't going to help. The base business. Uh, if, if you have a phenomenal base business in a really powerful base industry, uh, doing a whole bunch of acquisitions will stress the system. It'll bring out all the warts and flaws, but it can lead to a, an amazing uh, opportunity to grow the business and create a bunch of value. No different than kids. Uh, once you get that system going, make a family really fun and productive. So if you're an analogy, Benton, you're smiling a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I 100% agree. Um, it uh, it will put yeah. stress on the system. So make sure the base is yeah, ready yeah. to hold the stress. There's there a lot of different ways that I'd like to, to go with this, but I guess one, for me, one natural question that arises is, um, uh, like Trish Higgins and, and Chinmark. So they've got like a holding company of various businesses, but they're not really executing on a programmatic acquisition strategy within sure. one single type of business or industry. Um, I believe, for example, like one of their businesses was like a touristy, yeah, yeah, like yeah, a whale watching yeah. business, I think. So like, I mean, if you think about it, how, how in the world are you going to go you know, scale that? I guess you could kind of put together a brand that you could then maybe buy up other companies like this under the umbrella. But um, so I guess the, the question is, is how do you think about and know if that business is scalable or if you just need to sort of take a, a holding company approach to it? Like, what are some of the things you consider um, before going, going down this route? Yeah. So first, Trish, Trish Higgins, uh, James Higgins and Palmer Higgins are great. Love what they're doing. They're smart. Uh, so only good things to say about them. Um, I, I think the path that Chenmark is going down is just a choice. And I try to articulate in one of the, the uh, case notes I wrote on programmatic acquisitions that aspiring entrepreneurs that are pursuing this strategy have lots of choices. There are no right and wrong answers because there are as many success stories for each decision path as failure stories. So uh, Trish, James, and Palmer have made the decision to go, it appears right now, and I don't speak for them, but, but I'm just sort of observing what I think they're doing. They're, they're, uh, they're taking this holding company approach where they have a diverse portfolio of businesses that they're acquiring and they have leaders 
some of which are my former students, so I'm very proud of that. Um, they have leaders in those uh, portfolio organizations that are, are building standalone enterprises within the Chenmark framework. So that's an approach, not, not right or wrong. An alternative approach, which, which I, I teach a course on programmatic acquisitions, and I, I, I tend to gravitate towards the notion of doing it within a single industry where you get lots of domain expertise, you get a little bit more um, operating leverage, you, you, you get a little bit more synergies, you get maybe some more buying power, you get some more pricing power. And, and once again, there, there's not a right or wrong, it's just a decision each entrepreneur gets to make earning. So mostly when I talk about programmatic acquisitions, I, I tend more to think about it as someone pursuing this within a single industry. You know, a cousin of that decision, Bentman Victor, is what role will the CEO play? Is the CEO going to be a, a deal person who thinks of himself or herself as a capital allocator uh, in the vein of Warren Buffett, or are they a more traditional operating executive? Uh, not right or wrong, but, but sort of how the CEO defines their role is another choice um, in, this, in this journey. Um, how much geographic diversification is introduced, how much creep even within a single industry, you could be really narrow or how much creep do you have within a single industry? Um, you know, other toggles are how decentralized or centralized are you? How hard you do the integration or not? Um, no right or wrong because there are success examples with every approach, uh, but uh, usually, CEOs who are engaging the strategy do, do need a point of view and need to figure out what works for them in the context of their strategy and their industry. You had a really interesting um, couple of lines or sentences that I wanted to read um, on geographic versus industry diversification. Um, I want to read this and then we can kind of riff on this just to, to circle back to something you just said in your answer. So, so quote, Unfortunately, it is all too common for programmatic acquirers to set a goal of geographic diversification to realize that the underlying economic logic for doing so was weak. To maximize the chances of success, the programmatic acquiring entrepreneur should determine how entering new geographies will create value, not just increase the enterprise's size and complexity. And, and so barring industry diversification, so we're concentrating in one industry there's really only, I guess, two choices, which is to expand new markets or to, I guess, densify. Is that the word that I'm looking for inside the current market that you're in? Well, well I, I'm not against geographic expansion or diversification, but you could do it in a uh, adjacent way or a hopscotching way. So, and, and I'll, I'll talk about archives one for a second. I'm not saying I'm the textbook example of what's right, but we pursued loosely what we thought of as an I-95 strategy. So the company originated in Connecticut and we pretty much hug I-95, if you're familiar with that road going from Maine to Florida or Vermont to Florida, but by hugging the East Coast. Um, and we, I, once again, not right or wrong, but we weren't looking for opportunities in Seattle or, or Los Angeles. And those are wonderful markets. I'm just not sure how we could have managed or operated in those markets. But when you're geographically adjacent or geographically densifying, you get a lot of synergies. And it's really powerful when you could drive or someone within the organization can drive to a location and look at the fire or put out the fire uh, rather than trying to understand what's going on a few thousand miles away. 
So I, look, I think I think when you approach your programmatic acquisition strategy, there's sort of 101, 201, 301 ways you can do it. And if you've been knocking around in an industry for a few decades and you think you're awesome and you have tons of systems and processes, maybe you can take a, a little bit more of a geographic leap. But if you're starting out in this, I, I think geography can be a real threat and I think pace can be a real threat. It's sort of a crawl before you walk, walk before you jog, jog before you sprint type of approach. So uh, yeah, ge ge relaxing geographic constraints isn't bad. It's just, are you ready? Um, and it's just unequivocal in my opinion that you get more accretive uh, value when there's geographic proximity. Now, now some, some people in businesses so have an NFL city approach, not right or wrong, that wasn't my approach. We wanted to have sort of an I-95 strategy approach, and there were lots of great markets to pick off companies and try to build, build density um, without ever being in LA. Not that LA is bad. I love LA, but, but that was a big leap for us. This is a good segue, uh, I guess, just into your experience, but remind the audience, if you wouldn't mind, just where Archives One was located and then the first acquisition outside of that area. Like, what did that look like? And then we can go maybe to N plus sure. one. So, so what, uh, Archives One was started in the great metropolis of Waterbury, Connecticut, uh, plug for uh, sort of old industrial city in Connecticut. And we did a bunch of baby acquisitions in our market for a bunch of years, which is a great way to get your training wheels tested out. Uh, the first time we ever really took our training wheels off was buying a company in New Jersey. So call it two hours away type of thing. Uh, but get, you know, get there in a day, get, ba get back in a day. Um, and uh, yeah, that was our first real bona fide different, different area code acquisition. And then we tried to fill in that sort of call it Northeast Mid-Atlantic. We crept up into Vermont. We got all the way down to Florida, but that was after lots of learning, lots of false steps, lots of systems and processes building. Um, but at the end, it felt awesome. It felt it felt like we could do this really, really well, and buying a business was a complete non-event. Yeah. What were a couple questions? How, how did you source those initial, uh, like I guess you've called them mom and pop or or smaller acquisitions inside of your market? How did you source them, and then how did you fund them initially before you kind of got into some of the uh, bigger acquisitions down the line? Sure. Sure. So I think this is a fascinating question. So uh, initially, all of the deal sourcing was me and uh, just me knocking on lots of people, lots of people's doors, letters, uh, small gifts, but just trying to build a consistent rhythm and cadence of outreach to potential candidates. And one of the most amazing things about doing a programmatic acquisition strategy, unlike a search fund, is if your horizon is multi-decade, you have the luxury of planting lots of seeds. Of course, you want some to say yes every year, but in a search fund, you really need someone to say yes immediately. In a programmatic acquisition strategy, you could plant lots of seeds and, and sit and wait and watch those seeds to mature over a long period of time. So, so there's no waste of time. If you're in a specific industry, getting to know everybody in the markets you want to be in is a, is a fantastic use of someone's time. So initially I did it all. And how did we finance things initially? Uh, chaotically. So we, we had some friends and family debt. We would go to our local banks and try to explain to them what a cash flow loan was and how to buy these weird little businesses. Um, and, and we sort of ham, hamstrung it together, sort of uh, not, not graceful, not pretty, 
but that's how we initially did. I, I think what's interesting is as we got bigger, uh, my role changed within the organization and I still spent a chunk of time on sourcing, but in retrospect, not as much as I could have or should have. So I, I re remember distinctly my chief operating officer who was just over my house for dinner a couple nights ago, but um, he, he once came to me and said, AJ, let me pitch you on this. Why don't you do everything related to acquisitions, make me the president of the company, and I'll do everything that's related to integration, service fulfillment, so making the trains run on time. And of course, uh, being the idiot I was, I let my ego get in the way and say, no, like I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm gonna be the top dog uh, to the detriment of, of my wallet. <laughs> so in retrospect, that was incredibly foolish. Um, I, I, I think it's interesting to think about an entrepreneur that wants to do this. If they're good at it, spending time on deal sourcing is an incredibly important, impactful activity. So just think about it. Think about getting one more deal done per year um, or one better deal done per year, per year. That's incredibly accretive to the business and well worth the CEO or, or principal entrepreneur's time. And keeping the principal entrepreneur out of the weeds and focused on that machine, building, nurturing, the hand-holding, the face-to-face, activities that help nurture those acquisition opportunities is, is a phenomenal use of time. It, 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 it's not what most people's picture is of what a CEO does. So in the document storage business, you have these warehouses full, full of documents and, and teams that were running them, but the synergies in those, both in the bigger deals, but also the initial smaller ones, um, were they immediate? Were they easy to realize? Were, did, was that something you figured out later on down the line? Like talk about just, there are a number of different reasons why someone would want to obviously take on a programmatic acquisition strategy, one of them being synergies. So sure. I'm just, I'm, I'm curious yeah. in your case. Yeah, one of the holy grails in a programmatic acquisition strategy is when shared services flattens out. So the, 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 the think about it as corporate, think about it as the non-customer non facing people, the overhead flattens out as the business gets bigger or it grows at a decreasing marginal amount. Um, so when you hit that level, that's fantastic. So um, should, I, should I articulate the four holy grails of programmatic acquisitions while running. So, so getting uh, getting shared services to flatten out is one of the holy grails. Um, locking into multiple arbitrage, so buying businesses at significantly less, I would argue at least half of what the aggregated cash flows might be worth is another holy grail. Being able to do incremental deals with all debt and no new equity is a holy grail. And then finally, having a sourcing machine that allows you to gather these acquisition targets. Like those are the four things that if you get those all moving in the right way for you, it's going to be amazing. Um, okay. So your question was, how, how did we get synergy or, or operating leverage? Okay. We did two types of acquisitions. One acquisition was an in-market acquisition. So if we had fiscal capacity in a record center and we moved in a customer portfolio from a target company, those incremental margins might be literally 100%. So there was no incremental cost to service those customers. So, uh, you know, wonderful example of highly, highly accretive. Uh, the other example is if we bought businesses intelligently in adjacent markets, um, we got a lift because our shared services team did not grow or didn't grow proportionately. So those are very, very quantifiable, clear ways that we 
um, benefited from the from the uh, growth. That's before we engaged in price increases, uh, organic growth, being smart about real estate, imagine costs more tightly. But we tried to get, we, we thought about the integration process as uh, stabilization, integration, optimization. So three legs of the journey. Stabilization is just getting your arms around the the asset you just bought and, and making sure the wheels aren't coming off. Integration is beginning to do the standardization checklist of making sure the business is getting homogenized into your system. And optimization is finally, you know, getting as much as you can out of the business. So we were looking for you know, anywhere from 500 to 1,000 basis points through the optimization window. The optimization window might take two to three years, but we were we were hoping for 500 to 1,000 basis points. AJ, one question I have for you is like, as you look at, you obviously have seen a lot of entrepreneurs pursue this strategy, including yourself. Um, who is an example or, or what's an example of someone who has just crushed it with this? And what, what did they do uh, that made it work so well? Yeah, so if I had a site uh, entrepreneur who's done just about everything right. Uh, pick up my friend Joe Smith. So Joe Smith and I are uh, in YPO together in Connecticut. Joe Smith has a marvelous business uh, based in Glastonbury, Connecticut. Glastonbury is a suburb of Hartford, and Joe is in the really exciting, energizing insurance brokerage business. And I say that jokingly because I'll never miss an opportunity to tease Joe about insurance. So, uh, but Joe has built a uh, really phenomenal business. Uh, Joe does about $50 million in revenue. Um, he has about 200 employees, I think. Um, and uh, Joe is a phenomenal operator. So this guy has insurance in his veins. Uh, you know, Joe's answer to everything is more insurance. <laughs> um, but he's done a really fantastic job thinking about programmatic acquisition. So, so he's done, I'm going to guess, somewhere between a dozen and 20 acquisitions. Um, very tight geography. So Joe could drive to all of his dots, which are sort of New England-ish. I think he creeps into Albany. Um, I, I want to I talk about culture for a second. So make sure you bring me back to culture. Um, Joe has figured out a way to buy businesses with no money down. So uh, he's using some seller paper as well as some industry specific financing to buy his target acquisitions. Uh, insurance brokerages have really sticky revenue. Uh, Joe um, has demonstrated valuation discipline, so he's more than more than comfortable walking away when a target doesn't meet the financial profile. He does a really excellent job integrating and growing the businesses. So not only does he tighten up the business and make it part of the system, but once it is part of the system, he knows how to nurture it and make it better than it was on its own. Uh, Joe benefits from being in an industry context where he has multiple arbitrage. So he's buying businesses at, at fair prices, but discount to what a much larger company like Joe would be worth. Uh, and finally, where I think Joe has gotten it really right is uh, with pacing. So Joe is not running around with his hair on fire. Uh, he sources all the deals himself. He's a big shot within the industry, within the region. So he has this really great sourcing machine cooking, but he is doing deals at a pace where he could integrate, digest, consolidate, and go forward. And a big risk that I observe in these programmatic acquisition projects is when people try to do too much too quickly. And that's just pouring gasoline on a house that's already simmering with flames. And that, that to me is one of the best ways to mess it up. And Joe does not do that. 
So um, Joe, Joe, uh, and, and I tease him about this, but Joe's culture tagline is be sure. So, uh, and he's kindly given me all sorts of swag with be sure logos on it, but uh, he's built this amazing culture within the organization. And what's so cool about the culture is it feeds the programmatic acquisitions. So he uses his culture as a sourcing tool. And when he pitches potential candidates about all the amazing things that he does in his business with people and communities, uh, people gravitate to Joe. And his all the time and dollars and energy he's invested in culture is yielding results in incremental acquisition opportunities. Additionally, once those companies get acquired, the people that join Joe's team really thrive within his culture. So um, I, I've written a case about Joe and I teach the case and, and students always sort of feel a little bit uncomfortable with Joe's culture um, because it's, it's so, I'm trying to think what the right word is. It's 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 so uh, it's it's completely genuine, but it's a little bit quirky. But it does an amazing job of allowing Joe to attract more candidates and make the candidates he closes that much better within his system. So look, I think Joe's getting multiple arbitrage. I think he's got a sourcing machine. I think he gets um, the benefit of shared services flat flattening out, and he's figured out a way to finance all these deals without incremental equity. So Joe gets an A+. He's four for four on the holy grails in an amazing, in an amazing industry. So Joe's sort of my poster child of doing it really, really well in a context that works for Joe. Joe, Joe isn't gobbling up companies in California and the West Coast. I'm, I'm not sure that's what he wants or who he is, but he's built a really uh, excellent organization that fits for his goals and skills in greater New England. So shout out to Joe, A+. Okay, so the four sins uh, in programmatic acquisitions, and this was a case note, so what might go awry, pace. So trying to do too much too quickly, especially when the foundation isn't there, is a, is a surefire way to increase the risk and potentially overturn the apple cart. Um, not engaging in integration. So just amalgamating disjointed assets with no common thread and core uh, means you more than likely will not benefit from any synergies. Um, taking on inappropriately large financial leverage too early. And, and I'm a guy that's pretty comfortable with debt, but only when the foundation is really thick and solid. Um, but taking on too much leverage to do these acquisitions when the, when the systems and processes are there or the industry isn't perfect is a good way to increase risk. And finally, not having valuation discipline but rationalizing higher prices, either because you think there's gonna be arbitrage or it's a must-do deal. There are no must-do deals. <clears throat> Those are four amazing ways to decrease the probability of success. Charlie Munger always said he just wanted to know where he would die so he didn't go there. So. So yeah, I guess that's, I guess it's right. a solid way to uh, to wrap up. But AJ, this was phenomenal. Uh, another another great addition to um, to the first to the first episode that we did. I would highly encourage folks to go take a look uh, that one uh, before you listen to this one. AJ, thanks for your time. This was super enlightening. Uh, Victor, any other questions? Anything you got? No, AJ, enjoyed it as always. So Benton, thank you so much, Victor. Uh, I really appreciate your interest and valuable time. If, if I plug my writing, is that inappropriate? Absolutely. Please take this time to do so. Yeah. So, so any listener that that uh, wants to learn more about stuff I write, just go to my bio page at Yale School of Management. Uh, most of it's available to the public, and feel free to read. Uh, share the link if it's useful to anybody else. And just want to do everything I can to help people that are 
aspiring entrepreneurs and want to go down a path of building a business. Can't recommend AJ's writings enough. I've read not all of them, but a good portion of them. So highly, uh, highly recommend folks go check that out. So AJ, thanks for the time. We appreciate it. Thank you.